This is a Cane Growers podcast. I'm Nerily Roki, and in this episode, Paul Skembry looks back over 39 years as a Queensland sugarcane growers representative. He's taken on roles that propelled him from his farm near Mackay to state, national and international meetings as the chairman of cane growers. Four decades is a lot of industry history, and he's had some significant mentors by his side. To begin, Paul Skembry and I went to where it all began, and two men who were there from the very start. Well, narrowly, here we are in the impressive Cane Growers Mackay boardroom. 39 years ago, I walked through that door, crossed the threshold, sat down at this impressive boardroom table under the Cane Growers sign, and never in my wildest dreams did I believe I'd become chairman of Queensland and Australian Cane Growers. Joining me, two of my original colleagues, Malcolm Pratt and Bill Benson. And from what I understand, they are responsible for you being here. Well, I'm one of them that's responsible. And the late Charlie Jensen, him and I got together because the bloke that resigned lived in the local area and so we got together to see if we could find someone to take the position. And we bailed Paul up. And somehow or other he'd give in. Bail him up down at the siding. He was down there talking and he got rounded up. We never got a stick of cane or anything, or cane off the head he went. We, we bailed him up and, and we said to think it over. And then we had the problem of getting him elected because the election was over. Had to get the government... Con- what was the government... So in that time, because the vacancy occurred 12 months out from an election, there couldn't be an election. I was appointed by the governor in council, by the cabinet. So my first ever tenure on the committee, I was appointed by the government. I was never elected. But that I was. And how old were you at this point? 23. Um, Interesting thing, I got on the committee in 1976. It was really a bit of an old boys club in those days because they were my father's generation, you see. I was the youngest. But that was that was fairly interesting. There was a lot of tradition in the committee where we, we had a nice smoke and a nice lunch and you know. And uh, that, that's how it was. The deputy the deputy chairman, if there was a chairman and deputy chairman, you served three years or six years before you became chairman and that, that was for tradition, you see. So the old chairman, Jim Ham- Jim Hamlin, he retired and Jim Adams became chairman. Now Jim was very proactive and uh, he, he he was receptive to change, you see. And he, he wanted to introduce uh, the next generation of growers. And uh, Paul was one of those that, that came on. And uh, when Paul first arrived on the committee, you, you could see that he possessed his talent. He had he had political finesse. And he, he knew he, he sort of knew his way around, you know, and he had the gift of the gab, as that say. <laughs> so anyway, what happened then was... Uh, uh, Jim Adams introduced some changes, which which were you know the other committee members in the Mackay district were, were, were a bit staggered about, and because the next generation were involved with mechanical harvesting, we went on to night meetings in the crushing, because that and that was one way of accommodating the next generation because we were involved with the harvesting, whereas the, old, the previous generation they they had cane cutters so they could take the day off while the cane cutters cut the cane manually but we 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 were hands on generation so that 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 didn't go too well down <laughs> with, with all the other committees but anyway it, it was the right thing to do 
Farley was sort of a, a trendsetter in those days because we had young blood on, on the committee. When uh, What happened then was when Jim Adams retired, I was the deputy chairman, and uh, you, know, you could see that Paul had the makings of a, of a leader. So, and I had I had designs on joining the board of Mackay Sugar, you see. So, if I had taken over the chair, and a vacancy came up on Mackay Sugar, well, I could have left halfway through my term, and that wouldn't sort of look look good. So, I had a chat to Bill, and we got our heads together, and we thought what we should do is we should elevate Paul to the chair. I would stay deputy chairman, and Bill and I'd watch his back. Which and do. and that's what happened. <laughs> but what what that did. That, that really fast-tracked Paul's career because straight away Paul then had a seat at the table in Brisbane and he, at the time, I think would have been the youngest member ever to join Queensland Congress Council. And it went from there, you see. So, but did you realise that you'd be watching his back for you know thirty nine years? <laughs> well, we didn't have we didn't have didn't to watch have his back to. for long. Well, well, they always have, and particularly Malcolm. When I became chairman of Farley Committee, I think I was 28, 29. It was a difficult phase in the history of Farley, and Malcolm was older than me. And I went to a lot of meetings, and they were robust. <laughs> that would be an understatement. We sort of formed like a tag team. When I felt the pressure was increasing, I'd wink at Malcolm, and he'd take up the fight. And so I probably would never survive my early career without Malcolm and Bill. They were mm. great backups. Mm. Why were the meetings so robust? The well, sugar industry has always been notorious for colour. They're passionate people. Mm. They tell you how they feel. There was uh, a period after the merger of Mackay Sugar in 1988 that there was uh, a lot of upset growers around that. They used to vent uh, with us. But there were a lot of chaotic changes were occurring in the industry. The 80s was a period where the world sugar price collapsed and, to a large extent, gave rise to the cane train and all the rest of it. They were tough times. The industry nearly collapsed. Mm. They were yeah. tough times. Yeah, they were, yeah. Let, let me reflect on probably the worst meeting Paul and I ever oh, went to. So we goes up to the North Coast for a branch meeting. There was a whole lot of issues involved. The, the debate was getting a bit robust, you see. Paul and I are trying to pour oil on troubled waters. And next thing, the chairman sided with one of the groups. Yeah. Well, that was like throwing petrol on the fire. <laughs> Everything just sort of got out of hand. The secretary was Jim Hay at the time. And Jim, Jim was a pretty level-headed sort of a bloke. Jim said, well, he said, as far as I'm concerned, the meeting's finished and I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> so, and everyone sort of looked around and they all went home. Now, the... The following meeting the next month, the secretary's reading the minutes, you see. So anyway, he read the minutes and he finished off by saying the meeting finished in, in absolute chaos, the yeah, uproar and absolute chaos. So. Fact, so, I think he said it finished in uproar. The farmer stayed in uproar. We thought about ringing the police, but the growers got tired and went to bed. And that was an important lesson yeah. for me because... I knew the next day the sun would come up and things would move on. But, but the interesting thing about that from Paul's point of view is it, it was a great grounding because that was one way not to conduct a meeting. <laughs> you know, we've been up and down a few dry gullies in our day, but, gee, that night we were in the trenches with our hard hats on. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Now, I've, I have heard whispers and hints about a red stiletto <laughs> incident 
Is someone, Mr Benson, is someone going to tell me exactly what happened? I can tell you a little bit about it. The girl that come to be the, do the minutes, she must have took her shoes off. If they disappeared, when she went to get her shoes after the meeting, she couldn't find them. And, of course, where did they get that? In Paul's briefcase. <laughs> Yeah. And it took a long time to live that down. Every day you go to a meeting and end up with a pair of red stilettos <laughs> in your briefcase. And that was my first meeting. And so this would, is the same day you walk through the door for the yeah, first time? Yeah. About the first meeting. I had a brand new briefcase. Are you stuck yeah. around? Well, I thought if I could survive that, I could survive a few other things. How they got them down to Paul's briefcase, I don't know, but I wasn't... They, they, they just kicked him along. Because <laughs> I was sitting over the other side there. I could see what was happening, but Paul never a clue. <laughs> but anyhow, that yeah. was it. it in, interesting thing about the uh, the Parley Mill Supplies Committee, we we always believed in the best man for the job, you see. That's why Paul got the chair job, you see. <laughs> Sally was due to give birth to Paul's right. first son, you see. And, of course, the... the the date was in the middle of the Cambridge Conference down in Brisbane, you see. So Paul said to me, oh, he said, uh, he said, I might have to get you to fill in for me down at the conference because Sally's due. So anyway, I said to Paul, well, you know, you, we've always had the best man for the job on this, this deal. I said, I said, I've got three children and I've, I've been at the birth of three of my children, so I'm the most experienced in births and you're the most experienced in Cambridge Conference. <laughs> Paul said, it, it would be politically correct here if the inexperienced bloke went to the Macquarie Maternity Ward <laughs> and the inexperienced bloke went to the conference. <laughs> so when I get down to the conference, you've got to be able to introduce yourself. I related that story. Teddy's best wishes to Paul. And... I'm sure Sally says you made the right choice. <laughs> so did you make the right choice, do you reckon, with this guy? Oh, couldn't have made a mistake, could we? We Not made for... the right choice. Yeah, we very. Right choice, yeah. I think we've talked about it. And that was the opportunity of youth. We always say in Cangrass that we need to bring young people in. I was given that privilege, that gift of being there when I was young, learnt. My first meetings, for the first 12 months, I was wondering, I used to go home and tell my mum, what the hell am I doing here? It all seemed so complex and I felt like I was out of place. But wonderful thing that we have as Cangrass is perseverance and people who are older, the mentors, encourage you, have confidence in you, and slowly you get that experience. People like Bill and Malcolm have been so important to me. Who else along the way? Oh, been a whole range of mentors. Uh, the chairman of the committee in my time was the late Jim Adams. And I can relate a story where at my first meeting at 23, I was like a bull at the gate, going to change the world. And afterwards... Jim pulled me aside and said, now, Wood, slow down, boy. You're not going to change the world overnight. Be a bit measured. That was that was good advice. There were wonderful people. There was a local parliamentarian called Ray Braithwaite oh. gave me good advice. I think I always remember he said something like this. If you want to be successful in life, follow successful people. If you want to follow Phil, you'll end up a fool. It was really good advice. But, of course, the greatest mentor I had was Harry Bonanno. Harry was chairman of Canegrass for 12 years and I'd never seen anything like it. And so he spent a lot of time with me. He also corrected me when I was wrong. And Harry what? used to always say, when you get the job, hit the bitumen, just don't look behind, keep running. And also being decisive, um, he used to have a phrase, 
that used to say, best be shot for something than shot for nothing. A lot of people, when given the opportunity of leadership, for a whole range of reasons, don't do things. Sometimes you've got to pull the trigger on very difficult issues. Sometimes you've got to push beyond being populist. Sometimes it's best to take the tough decisions. And I never forgot that advice because your time there can be fleeting and before you know it, it's gone. If you've got a good argument behind your decision on why the decision is made and explain to the growers in great detail why we should make this decision or why we should go down this path, and that, they will accept that. If you've got the confidence and the fire in the belly to believe your conviction and you can stand up in front of a large audience and tell them why you did it, they may not like the decision, but they'll respect you, generally. And that's I found that time and time again. Uh, and often, Malcolm's right, we had to make some tough decisions. Who knew when you, you know, drove out and found him by the siding? That this is the, that you'd, you'd create, you know, the gentleman that we have sitting with yeah, us today. And, and but Charlie and I talked it over, and that's what we ended up doing. <laughs> and and there wasn't not many meetings, months passed before the risk committee realised we, we had talent sitting around the table. <laughs> so, he was keen. Mm. He was keen. Well, I didn't see it at the time, but it Mm. it Mm. takes years and you get that experience. And people invest confidence in you, and that helps you. From that boardroom at the Kangaroo's Mackay office, Paul and I headed out to Farley and another special place. Well, I've got an office in my house, which has got state-of-the-art office gear, all the mod cons. But somewhere along the line, last 15 or 20 years, I wanted some quietness. Uh, and I've got uh, a $10 table uh, in the shed, a little bit of a man cave, I, I guess. It's out here that I do a lot of thinking, writing editorials, do a lot of interviews uh, on radio out here in the quietness uh, of this area. But also, look at the view, looking out over the Farley Valley, over the farms, and it reminds me of the people I represent and the aspirations of those farmers. So this is just my little quiet spot, occasionally practice speeches. You have a lectern for that? Yes, uh, I'm one uh, uh, that has been taught about practice and getting it right because this is a great privilege I have, great privilege to represent growers on the state, national and international state. So I try to do my best uh, and make sure I represent the people uh, that I'm entrusted to represent. So, you know, I spend a lot of time out here practising. We talked uh, before about the 1980s and the um, the fact that they were difficult times for the industry with very low sugar prices. That's just one of the decades that you've been involved with the industry. Tell me about the next couple of decades. So I covered literally four decades, one year short of four decades. The 80s were a major struggle for the industry. We were in receipt of very low world sugar prices and people will remember the cane train, the famous cane train that went to Brisbane to argue for a greater uh, price. The industry was heavily regulated in the 1980s, but the world price had descended so low, it nearly collapsed the industry. The 90s, we let the handbrake go and it boomed. Uh, The area under cane increased by 50%. Uh, 
the volume of uh, sugar increased by 40% in in one decade. Strong world sugar prices drove it. Uh, we were in an expansionist mode. Come the early 2000s, uh, we had the first um, inklings of deregulation and we had to take on deregulation both within the organisation and the industry. It's rather interesting, when I started out in 83, uh, the industry was highly regulated at the macro end, the institutional arrangements, and at the farm gate, no regulation. 40 years on, it's tipped right over. Uh, and that is there's very little regulation at the macro end, but we are being um, very much submerged with all this uh, farm uh, regulation. Then I think the last decade, the last 10 years, has been the social licence issues, demonstrating that we've got the right environmental credentials. I believe our credentials are strong. That has been the challenge for us, uh, to demonstrate we've got the environmental prowess uh, and that we can make the grade in terms of the expectations of not just the community, but the government as well. And so they have been possibly the four different decades, but the one thing that's constant, we've changed. We've had to change. The drivers of change have been different, whether it's deregulation, social licence. We've constantly had had to evolve. I'm sitting with you on a hill at Farley and I can remember starting off in the industry on this farm as a 17 year old and the industry uh, 40, 50 years ago is unrecognisable to what it is today. Uh, When I go back in time in terms of the industry, agriculture had a very strong connection with government community. It still has that. It's still highly regarded. But the world has changed. There are competing interests. We've had to advocate in a different way. We cannot do what we did in the 80s or the 70s. We've got to change with the times. And that's sometimes the most difficult thing to convince all your peers that we've got to change uh, with the times. And you obviously have. What sort of things have you learnt along the way to, to help you move through those changes? Well, I've constantly had to evolve myself. I think my core values haven't changed in how I react and how I see a situation. But I've found in leadership you've just got to be perceptible to all those external influences. We're living in a world of constant change and things that we thought were certain aren't certain now. Can I say this? The industry's been around for 150 years. It's one of the oldest, maturest industries in Australia and will continue to adapt and I think the industry still has a bright future. What about the role of cane growers? Why, why has and why is cane growers important? There's a saying, a proverb that drives me strongly. It says, if you want to travel fast in life, travel alone. If you want to travel together, you'll travel slower, but you'll travel further. You know, to me, the power of one is enormous. The power of two, unstoppable. The power of three and more you can literally change the world. And not everybody in cane growers will always agree with what you're doing and we'll have detractors uh, and some people in the membership will not be happy with us. But our best success lies in our capacity to gel together, to stay together, to stay united. And the growers in Mackay support the growers in Cairns and the growers in Cairns support those in Bundaberg and Rocky Point. It, success is the sum of all the small bits. And that has been what has driven me because I've seen that we can make the big plays when we're united. This journey with cane growers has taken you from Farley to a lot of places. 
I was appointed to the Farley Committee in 83, uh, but as others have described, I was elevated very quickly up the ladder. And in 89, I found my way onto the Queensland Cane Growers Council at the age of 31. It was one of my first trips to Brisbane, representing the sugar industry, and it was quite intimidating to go to my first Queensland Cane Grass Council. But I always tell this story that one of the guys that greeted me was the oldest member of the council, Bert Pollock, who put his arm around me and the oldest member of the council put the hand of friendship out to me, the youngest, and so that was quite intimidating, the first meeting. Harry Bonanno had just been elected as chairman of Cane Grass. Uh, one of the moments that I'll never forget was getting the opportunity to speak in front of 800 people at the Winter Garden in London being translated into eight different languages. That's a little bit of a pinch-me moment. You start to think you shouldn't be there, uh, and then that tells me that that's a big moment where you're representing growers. Uh, Heaps of meetings with politicians, prime ministers that come to mind. One that uh, I'll never forget is we had a meeting in um, Canberra with the health minister uh, about uh, a sugar tax. But to get there, we lit a fuse. Um, I knew some editors of newspapers, the Daily Mercury, we struck up some headlines. And so they were really important meetings when we got there that we had a message about a sugar tax. And at the end of the day, uh, we were successful. You never forget meetings with prime ministers and premiers and so forth. And not only meetings away from here, you've hosted some pretty important people on your farm as well and given them an introduction to sugarcane farming and the industry. For a whole variety of reasons, um, I'm close to town, not far from airports, so Deputy Prime Ministers or Premiers or Ministers will always find it convenient to drive out to my house. It's quite picturesque, but it tells a story in itself. It tells the story of the green, of the hard work, uh, of the sweat and tears that have gone into these farms, and I can tell my narrative from here. And it's good that you're on your own territory because you can tell your story a lot better. So, yeah, having people on your farm very graphically can illustrate to them what you're about. But I think as well, not just what you're doing, but whether you're fair dinkum as a person. And I've found that most people are willing to engage in conversations. Some of those contacts you have hold you in good stead over many, many years. I know some people will say, I, or he or she's a media celebrity or whatever, but I've taken the view, if people want to know about our industry, I've got to tell them. And whether it's a radio station in the back of South Australia or the Northern Territory, Karatha, whoever it is, I always participate in those interviews because we've got to keep telling our story. And I think the people in the general public, because they see you out there, they have a strong affection for our industry. Not everyone loves us, I get that. But generally there's a strong affection for our industry and who we are. What do you see for your fellow growers and the industry and also cane growers in the future? We'll be under constant challenge. We've stared down threat, threats in the past. The challenges will come and go. They'll be different, but our challenge has to be we've got to stay united, uh, get the voice out there. I'm positive the population of the world is 11 billion, that there'll be strong demand for sugar. The big challenge is the environmental challenge, 
our credentials are good, we will come out the end of it in good shape. Worldwide, we're acknowledged as some of, if not the most environmentally sustainable in the world. So we're getting a good rating internationally. We'll cut through, we'll get some certainty. I think the third thing, the industry format will be different. There's tremendous opportunities at value adding and diversification. So the challenge will be we have to change with the times. It'll be a different industry as it was for me when I started. You've been listening to Paul Skembury, who has retired as Cane Growers Chairman at the 2022 Grower Elections. If you've got questions or an idea for a topic for a Cane Growers podcast in the future, you can send them in on email to info at canegrowers.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you.